This is Selena. Akure de la Halle. This is Carol. So welcome to the Peace Corps Tales podcast. Thank you to everyone who came in today. Today we have a great tale waiting for you and we're excited to chat with uh, Mani. So please welcome her into the podcast. <laughs> Hi, my name is Mani. Um, I served in Uganda for, for 22 months, um, from 2018 to 2020. Um, I lived in Busia, in very deep in the village, um, little local town. So I served as a agribusiness. They later changed it to um, agri- agriculture, economic development. So that was my role. So I was a business uh, specialist. Nice. How big was the population of your town, would you say? Oh, gosh. It was a lot of people. But looking at it, you know, it didn't seem like it. It was also a border town. Maybe like a good 3,000 people. Because you said you were like an agricultural business. So was it more like rural like sites than like urban? Oh, yeah. very. It was very rural. Like I was, you would go down the main like road that was tarmac and concrete and everything. And then you would turn off on the dirt road and drive for another 20 minutes. <laughs> That's how you got to my village. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So let's start off this podcast. I first want to ask, uh, why did you join Peace Corps? Um, I joined Peace Corps because I wasn't ready for the nine to five job just yet. It's like, I wanted to travel some more. Um, to be honest, like I wanted to be outside of America and I was like, I want to get out there. I've never been to Africa and like my side of the family is Cameroonian. So I tried to go to West Africa, but my um, country got changed at the last minute. So I ended up going to Uganda, but I was like, that's totally fine. I was like, at least I still get to go to the continent. So that's all I was happy about. So as you were going to like pack to leave, what was one item that you're just so happy that you packed? Oh, man. I was so happy that I brought two different things. My bag of nail polish. <laughs> it's like I like, you know, painting my nails and it's also like a stress reliever. And then my friendship string because I like making friendship bracelets. And that's also like another um, calming thing for me. It's like if I'm sitting, I was sitting in my house at night or usually during the morning time, I'm like, I'm going to paint my nails today. <laughs> Even I couldn't do my hands, but I always like paint my toes. Um, and then if I wasn't doing anything, I would make a friendship bracelet for either my site mate or um, my host brother or sister. Did the people there love painting their nails? Because I know during our service, the kids loved it. Yes, they love nail polish. I ended up giving pretty much yeah my whole bag of nail polish away to my host family and um, sisters because they were like, can I have this? I was like, yeah, you can. But my uh, my neighbor, she was a teenager. She was really fun. She would always come out and hang out. And she saw it when she discovered I never said it, but she discovered it and was like, what is this? And I was like, oh, it's nail polish. She was like, oh, it's Q-tips. And they call it Q-tips there, which is weird. Like, that's the name of it. They don't say nail polish. They say Q-tips. She's like, oh, you have Q-tips. You paint, you paint me. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> so and they, they loved it. She would always come over and she would paint colors on top of other colors. And I was like, let it dry. <laughs> yeah, I know. That was like a huge thing. I remember uh, little kids when we'd give them vaccines, we'd like paint their pinky or something to show. And the kids like that didn't get the vaccine would be sad because they're like, what about me? What about me? <laughs> Okay, so that's really cute. That's a great one to have packed. Uh, but what was one that you wish you had packed? I wish I brought running water. No, I'm kidding. I wish I brought more SD cards for my camera because it's like I took so many pictures and I, and I just resorted to just using my phone, which was fine. But I, I ran out so fast. I didn't expect because I had already brought, um, I think like 16 gig, like four of them SD cards. And they like filled up pretty quickly <laughs> with how many pictures I was taking. So I just ended up using my phone. But of course, that took up like a lot of space. Yeah, that's so true. God, I remember like during my service, I luckily had brought in like a an external hard drive and a laptop. And so with that, I was able to always transfer over my pictures. But I can't imagine if I didn't have that because, <laughs> yeah, 16 gigabytes nowadays is not that big. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it like filled up pretty fast. <laughs> so fast. And then like some stuff I did videos too. So and I was also helping out my um, counterpart. He wanted like videos or pictures of his, the kids that were graduate. And so I would help him with that. And so I was like, I'll just use my camera. It's fine. Cause you know, he didn't have it. And I was like, 
it's fine. I'll help him. And so that took up the videos, like took up a lot of space <laughs> before I knew it. And I was like, crap, I didn't think this through. <laughs> I feel like I didn't take enough pictures. Now that I go through my pictures, sometimes I'm like, man, I wish I had taken this picture because life just became so like normal, like every day. But now that I'm back, it's like, oh, man, I wish I had taken pictures of this and that and just like daily life or even doing the the one second per day or something where people put together. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I kind of regret that I didn't do any of those things because it would have been like nice. Towards the end of service, I like I didn't take as many pictures anymore because I was very comfortable. I was like. I'm not going to document this. I don't care. You know, like this is home. This is the life. This is the life right now. So this isn't worthy of a picture, but it's nice to look back at that stuff, that everyday life. If you do document it. Yeah, actually I was the opposite for my last like two weeks. I just went around and took pictures of the people who I knew doing everyday tasks. Cause I was just like, Oh, well like these are the things that I will re forget over time. And so that's what I did. Like people just like, you know, like shoveling some rice or people washing clothes by the riverside. Like I just took pictures like that or little videos. Cause I'm like, well, this is going to be what I want to remember later on. <laughs> I love watching people like washing their clothes by the rivers. Oh, I love that. <laughs> it was just cool to me. I don't know if you felt like this, but I always say that during pre-service training, we were treated treated like children. Oh, you can do this and you can do that. But even I felt that way. I thought training was amazing because I don't think I could have been able to do my service without the training. So is there any like a really good memory or, or a highlight that you can think of during PST? They did. They definitely treat us like children. I'll agree with that. They treat us like children throughout our whole service, to be honest. Like we felt like... We were watched like hawks, you know, I was always like nervous to go anywhere or do anything. So I'm like, they're going to catch me if I'm at this place. And I'm not supposed to be here or something. But um, at PST, I, yeah, I do just remember being very babied. But uh, a real highlight right before we were um, at the end of it, when we were getting ready to go to our sites. My supervisor, he was he didn't like he was supposed to organize a taxi to take um my group of site mates that were like in our village to go together he didn't do a very good job of like figuring out the time and when the taxi was coming so he came when i say banging on my door at 3 a.m and woke up everybody on like my hall in the hotel and like mind you these hotels i don't know how it was like in y'all's country but like the doors in Uganda, like some of the hotels, they have like a screen at the top of the door. So it's not, so it's, so it's like you can hear into somebody else's room. It's not like completely sealed. It's like weird. And I was like, maybe that's for like ventilation or air or something, but which they have windows in their room. So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't understand that. It was just like a weird architectural thing. But he came banging, was yelling my name and was like, we got to go, blah, blah, blah. Like, and I was like, you're going to wake people up. Oh my God. Like it's 3 a.m. So being babied and my supervisor being hella loud because that was just, it was just embarrassing. It was, it was just so embarrassing and he did not care. Like he was just, we got to do this. We got to go and just talking and have a full conversation. He's all smiles, like not having like any, he doesn't realize at all, like the other side of it, how loud you're being. That's <laughs> what I remember. <laughs> but wait, we never traveled when it was dark. At 3 a.m., this is still pretty dark. So how are you like in a taxi at that time? So what ended up happening, we didn't get on the taxi because the taxi driver was mad that we were taking too long to get ready. <laughs> so that was another thing. So we didn't go. At that time, the Peace Corps people, they wouldn't have cared. They would just been like, they literally, they were like, get to sight however you can. Like some people um, took Ubers all the way from the capital to their villages and it, they had to pay a lot of money to get there, but you know, it, it worked out for them. They, I mean, they had a private car and it took, it took them and all their stuff to their sites. So they were like bougie like that. Whereas other people like me, I was, my supervisor put me and another girl, another site mate on a taxi, put our stuff on top of the taxi. We were like nervous and they were like, they're going to steal our suitcases or our suitcases are going to fall off. Like we didn't know what was going to happen. So yeah, Peace Corps at that time did not care. They say, get there how you can, however you can, just get to site. <laughs> well, I'm just amazed that there is Uber. Uber? I'm telling you, every time I got to the Capitol, I was like, I am not taking any public transportation. That's the only time I was bougie, where I was like a very basic American. I was like, I am taking an Uber. If I want to go to this or that place, like I would get off, I would get off a taxi and I would always have like my traveling clothes was like a big oversized t-shirt and my leggings and sneakers. And I have like my 
book bag and my other traveling bag. And I would get off all dusty because my village was so dusty coming out of it. We were the mo- we were one of the most rural villages too on my side. Get to the capital, I'm all like brown, like red clay and everything all over my face. And I get in somebody's nice private, you know, car. And I'm like, hi, how are you? <laughs> and they're like, wow, you're traveling today, huh? I'm like, yep. <laughs> so... Actually, I would get off, go to the mall, go buy a smoothie. That was the first thing, first order of business. Cause I was like, I need something cold. <laughs> go get a smoothie, call an Uber. He'll pick me up right in front of the grocery store and drop me at my hostel. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, Uber was nice too. And like, it never, I never had a bad Uber experience. Like the Uber drivers were always very like, they would always, <laughs> they didn't want to spend the data or the money to like put their location on. So they would always end up texting me like, where are you? And I'm like, just just use the app. <laughs> like they just, so they, they never wanted to do that. So I was like, okay, I'm standing in front of this store and they're like, oh, got it. Okay. And I'm like, I'm wearing a gray shirt and black leggings and purple sneakers. Like, so I had to like detail them, tell them every detail about how I look and like where I'm standing. That was the only like downside of that. It's like, they never want to use their app unless they got um, a pickup and they turn it right off. <laughs> and, then they, and then they turn it back on when they're like done with the trip. Yeah. So they were funny that way, but they would never want to like spend the data or the money. <laughs> yeah. But I loved it. So how much was the average trip on an Uber? It was cheap. Like, let's see. In shillings, it was like, I would spend no more than like 7,000. So that was probably like $2. Kind of pricey though, if you think about like adding all the Uber trips, right? Yeah, it is because like if I took like if I took public transportation, that was only like probably half a shilling. It was just like 50 cents to go take a public transportation. But then I would hate like all the stops, getting off, getting on, letting people off and on. And I was like, I didn't want to deal with it. So I was like, I'm going to be bougie in the capital, especially during pay time. <laughs> it's like the Uber guy's helping me with my bags. You know, he's like, it's, it's a little bit more like nice and bougie. So that was the only time where I was like, I'm going to splurge on myself when I'm in the capital and I can use Uber. But, um, and every now and then, depending, like if I went to a Peace Corps training, sometimes I would use public transportation. We are curious about how pre-service training is in Uganda. Like how long it, ta- it took? Is it like the same standard? Yeah, that one, we we were at a site for like a nice like agriculture like type center or hostel. It was very, it was a very nice, um, I would say it was like a nice, pretty nice bougie like set up before we like really got into the tough and grittiness of what Uganda really was. We were at that place for about three weeks. And then we went, we did one week of going to a volunteer site with them and like seeing what they do as a volunteer. That was for a week. And then I believe a few more, a few days at our actual site and then PST. But I think, I think that's how, yeah, how it was. But we didn't see our host fam, actual host family until another five weeks because we had language training for five weeks. So did you guys have a host family during training or was it only like that host family was for your actual site once you like left? Yeah, we had a host family before PST and it was also during language training. So I stayed, yeah, I lived with a family um, closer to town and surprisingly I could bike from that house to my, uh, where my current site was. But um, yeah, I was there, I was there with them for five weeks during, also during language training and we did it at a um, local girls school. And during those weeks, how was your living conditions? Because you mentioned you have a host family during some time, and then you went to tech trip. So you stay with a a fellow volunteer during the tech trip at their house, or how does that work? Well, some people stayed at some people's houses, but for us, me, it was like me and another um, guy, another volunteer. We ended up they ended up putting us in a um, local hotel that was nearby because. That volunteer, she her house was like when I say tiny, tiny, it was pretty tiny. So it was no way me, me, him, and her could like all sleep in her house. So she ended up arra- arranging a hotel for her, and Peace Corps gave her like a budget um, and helped her out with that. And how was your host family situation during the language training? It was really good. Like I was surprised. So, so I was with um, a husband and wife. And they had four children that also lived with them. But I had my own room in their house. And they, when I say they tr- literally treated me like a baby, like they were so like 
treating me like an egg that, you know, we have to take care of her <laughs> just because we don't know if we're going to drop her or um, if Peace Corps will like snatch her up if we don't do right. So but they were they were super sweet, um, but they their house, I was very surprised. And that was just maybe like me not knowing what to expect, but in like expecting the worst more than what the best. So but their house was like really nice. Like they had a TV, they watched soap operas every night. Like, and they like had like a schedule of like eating and like soap operas and like um, the chores they did throughout the day and like the work and stuff. Yeah, they were, they were really good. They were really nice. It was nice to have my own little room. There was a rat though that would terrorize me every night. So <laughs> that would run in and out of my room. <laughs> and so my host, my host dad finally was like, you need sticky paper. And so he got, sticky paper and put it under my bed to catch the rat but um otherwise it was it was good and that's when i also started using the um pit latrine with the hole in the ground <laughs> bathroom at their house but theirs was like very very tiny when i and i'm a tall person so when i would go in i'm like hunching over yeah and also <laughs> i couldn't like you know you have to squat and it's like i couldn't like squat too good when i bent down and they barely like they didn't have tissue in there. They just had like newspapers. <laughs> I got very much in the habit of um, getting toilet paper and bought a night bucket, and the you know you know the rest with that one. And <laughs> would and would dump it, yeah. Because I, I did not like using a pit latrine. I want to give a clarification for the listeners. So sticky paper, um, it's a thing over in different countries where it's a really sticky kind of thing. It literally is paper with some kind of sticky paste. And then this paste will literally trap a rat or mouse or something where they can't get off it. So I know here in the States we have like mouse traps, yeah, where we have mouse traps that will kind of like, you know, there's a little bit of food or something. Well, this sticky paper, it attracts them at some point. I think you put like a little piece of food as well on the sticky paper. And then once it like sticks on it, it literally cannot move because it's like glued to the paper. And yeah, it is kind of sad. Like... It's not sad, it's terrifying because they you listen crying kind of because they can't too. Yeah, until they, they either die or somebody else comes up and pick them up and like drown them in their or just hit them on the head. It's very like traumatizing, I say. I had one in my house. It was a mouse though. Um and I it got caught in the sticky paper and I came home and it was there and so I had to like I was like, well, I, I can't, like, bash you on the head. Like, that just seems too hard. And I can't throw you in the trash because that's even more cruel. So I drowned it. Like, I was like, <laughs> I don't know what else to do. So I'll drown you. I'm sorry. And I'm, like, crying as I'm, like, drowning it. Okay. Going back to uh, priest's training. How was that transition from, you know, like, being constantly like training after training and being treated as a child and then to me it's like liberation but again it's like oh my god what I'm gonna be facing too like what was it like for you to stop being under Peace Corps care 24-7 and just being on your own for the next two years what was that transition like um it was scary to be honest, because like, it's like, I wasn't, it's like, I hated being babied and watched so much to the point where it's like, all right, you know, the patch in your butt, all right, go live. <laughs> and like, like when I got to my site, my house wasn't ready. So like, they were literally, they were still like sanding stuff down and painting. And I was like, huh? Like you guys knew I was coming. Nothing was ready. So I was living in my um, host mom's house and like, great. Like she had like a nice big house, but she also didn't have any electricity. So it's like I was I wasn't able to charge my computer or my phone or nothing. I was like I was just an emotional wreck for like three weeks because I was like, oh man, is it really gonna be no lights for two years? And when I when um bless my language um teacher though because he was so like he was like my Peace Corps dad because he he was also like a Ugandan but he also like would call me on my Peace Corps phone and was like, how are you doing today? And I'm like. And his name was Mongo <laughs> like like a Mongo tree. And he was I was like Mongo today is just very hard. I was like, I was expect this is not what I was expecting or just wasn't ready for. And he was like, calm down, calm down, daughter, you're fine. Like, you're fine. He was like, <laughs> and like during language training, I was the one that always brought my speaker and like played music for everybody because I like playing music. And so he was like, where's your speaker? Where's your phone? He, and I was like, my phone's dead. I don't have electricity. And so <laughs> he was like, so another volunteer gave me her um, power bank. And so, like, and surprisingly, that lasted me for a little bit. And I was good at, like, conserving, like, a little power and stuff. But um, by the end of, like, the three weeks, he came and, like, helped me, like, 
get people to come out and like set up the electricity and kind of like really push them to get the house finished because my host mom also liked me being like super close <laughs> you know she was like you can just stay in the house you just have your room in the house and I'm like yeah you know but <laughs> it's like I kind of kind of want my my own little space and so what she understood that she was like okay I get it yeah I understand so they kind of like put he like pushed into like finish the house guys come on so um for three weeks it was it was rough but after when they finally got the electricity like set up it's like i calmed down and was like this is what you signed up for you know it's like you're not gonna have like you know the things that you're used to back at home so it was a bit of a shock like it was that was when the real culture shock hit because like during training also everything is there for you you know it's like they baby you so much so it's like they really do take care of you but once they put you out in service (laughs) it's like you you are not completely on your own, but you are you're on your own. It's like you gotta really learn patience and resilience. So it it was a bit of a shock. But when I got comfortable and like got used to doing things how they do things and like taking bucket baths, man, I loved a warm bucket bath. Like that was like a weird thing. Like I loved coming home doing my little bucket bath. Like <laughs> it was great. So it's, once I adapted, it's like I was fine. It was it, everything became second nature. Wanted to ask, so you had electricity in your town? No. So I had, uh, we set up solar. Sorry, so I didn't clarify that. So we, they, yeah, he had a guy come out and set up like a really big solar panel and put it on top of my um, host mom's house. And then he connected a wire. This is so, <laughs> the, only in Uganda, like connected a wire from her house to like take it to mine, to connect it to my house. And then like he set up the switches and everything, which I had like one little switch and like one big light bulb <laughs> above, like um, hanging down from like one of my pillars in my house. So yes, yeah, so I had lights. It was super dim at night. So it wasn't like the best and super bright light, but it was like, I could see when I was cooking. <laughs> yeah, that's how we had to do because we didn't have electricity or running water either at our sites. And so for me, I had brought like a little solar panel to pretty much charge my phone and my laptop if I needed it. Uh, I inherited like another little solar thing. It was like a little solar panel and it was connected to two lights. And so at night they were, yeah, as you said, they were like bright enough where I could see everything, but definitely not bright enough where it's like a, because it, it's just like the kind of light of a solar it's like that bluish tint so it's not like warm or anything and so it was, it was like bright and I could see everything but then it also had that like blue hinge to everything so it's just like looking through a different lens I feel <laughs> oh I was just gonna ask who paid for your solar panel is it Peace Corps budget or did you pay for it I paid for it they gave but they gave us a um a living allowance for like our move-in, yeah, they gave us a move-in living allowance. So majority of my money went towards <laughs> that solar panel, which I was like, that's fine. I don't care. Like, give me some lights. <laughs> that's all I need. Because at least in Madagascar, a panel was really expensive. So even like with your move-in allowance, I don't think I would have been able to pay for it. I, I, I went two years without electricity until one of our stash mates, she left and she had bought like a really good one. And she sold it to me for like 50%. I was like, yes, I'll pay that money. And then the third year I was like, yes, light. This is life. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how some other volunteers did. Like some did not care. Like they were like, all right, I don't have lights. I don't have lights. Like I signed up for this. Like I'm ready to rough it. So <laughs> some people were fine with that. And, but I was like, no, I, need light. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I got, I got to see. Yeah. I was jealous of some of the volunteers, though, that, like, because one of my friends, she also had, she had a pretty nice setup, like, electricity and, like, running water in her house. And she, like, splurged and got an oven, had a fridge. Like, she was living the best life. Yeah. I was like, look at you. This is not Peace Corps. So, but I was, but I was jealous of that oven, though. Like, when she had that oven, I was like, so we making brownies today? (laughs) Because... So every time I came over, we got to, like, bake some stuff that we, like, missed from home. I mean, I can feel you there. I I personally didn't mind not having electricity. Like, that was one thing I could do without, but I needed an oven. And so instead of the little stove tops that you usually buy to cook your food, I literally bought an oven uh, so I could bake. That was, like, bougie, and I know a lot of people teased me about it during my service, but I was like, hey, I get cookies whenever I want, so deal with it. (laughs) (laughs) You gotta have my oven. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's one thing that I like, I love baking. And so for me, it was like a staple where I'm like, I don't care about running water, electricity, but baking, baking will be fine. (laughs) Because then I made pizza too. Like, and it was fun to share. Like that was always fun to share. 
Okay, so let's go. I want to hear now that we're like kind of in high spirits. What are three highlights that you had during your service? So I got to do, I was really happy uh, with how successful I did a one day malaria boot camp for like the local school in my village. And I completed, I got to do about, about three, probably more than three, but I can only remember the three that I did, but I did three like um, reusable menstrual pad trainings with women's groups. Um, and then the third thing, just making brownies for my host family on like a makeshift Dutch oven. Like those were like the the big things that I was like happy that I got to do. Yeah, those Dutch ovens. I remember we had a like cookbook that other past volunteers had made for us. And so it's all like recipes you can make within Madagascar and the tools available. And their Dutch oven was like pretty interesting because it's like three cans. Like you put some sand, you put the cans upside down, and then you put the thing on top, uh-huh. and then you put the fire underneath. Like, I don't know. It was just like whole contraption. Uh, with like a large pot (laughs) and it was cool but I was like I don't want to put that much effort so (laughs) okay (laughs) so y'all put so you put cans in yours so like mine was it's pretty much the same thing without the cans so like I just filled up a bigger pot with like half dirt and then put the dirt with a lid on it over the fire or like over sagiri what we called and let it sit on there and let it heat up and then put the smaller pot with like whatever batter, whatever I was cooking, like with my brownies, put it inside and then get coals from <laughs> the charcoal from the bottom of the sagiri, put it on top. So it creates that like oven type. So yeah, that's how I, how I did mine. It sounds like you get dirty though. Like with all the charcoal, do you get dirty? Oh yeah. And like, I was like all scary. So like my host brother, <laughs> he was like the one helping me though. So it wasn't completely me. I won't take all the credit for that. Cause like, I would get scared, like, from the hot, like, the coals were hot, so, like, we didn't have, like, a shovel or anything, we had to, like, go find, like, tools to help us, like, move the charcoal up top, and I was, like, scared of burning my fingers, and the smoke was all in my eyes, I was crying, like, <laughs> I couldn't, couldn't see, and he was like, I got it, I got it, I got it, just move, just move, just move, so, <laughs> he, like, helped me do everything, and, like, Ugandans, I swear they don't have fingertips, because they pick up hot pots and stuff, with their bare hands like they do not care so I was like how I'm over here a weakling like I can't pick up a hot pot like it was nothing for them oh I have a question because you mentioned you had like workshops or activities for reusable pack how did you do it to help material wise like I would get um just regular like fabric or I would go to like a fabric shop and like ask them for scraps or whatever but I also got a lot of materials from another volunteer a past volunteer and she was she also did like a lot of hygiene and um menstrual like lessons and trainings with girls and boys so it was she already had like a cutout of like a pad literally and like I just myself cut out a bunch of them because that also does half the work because if I would I had one, one training I had did with some kids like that was it was like one day of cutting and I was like yeah this is gonna take way too long but I had a cutout <laughs> I had a cutout and like laminate it with some clear tape or whatever and um just cut a bunch of those one night and had two sheets of them sometimes depending on how thin the fabric was though I would double it and then I myself went to, which I didn't mind spending money for, because a lot of people, once again, especially in the village, they just can't afford it. So I would go, I went to like, I would go to town and buy a bunch of towels and would just cut them up. And like that, that right there was like the, the catch, like, you know, you put it in the, the pad or whatever. So that's what catches it. Some people like the way Peace Corps had taught us because they taught, well, they taught the health people. They didn't teach the ag people, which I was kind of mad about. So it's funny, like I was doing pretty much menstrual hygiene trainings and I wasn't a health volunteer, but I love doing it. So and I learned and I learned from like another volunteer and also my site mate. So she because she was like, yeah, they trained us on it. But um, I ended up picking it up and it became kind of a passion. They used ribbon. Peace Corps like gave us like ribbon. They were like, that's the string i wish i had a picture oh my goodness um that was kind of like the the two ribbons on the each end to hold the towel in place yeah that's what that for but i was like ribbons expensive it doesn't matter so i would just use extra fabric and like cut up a bunch of strips and all i needed was fabric towels and uh, needles and string so i had got a bunch of needles literally half the work was done for me because i got a bunch of needles from the past volunteer who was getting rid of all that stuff and she gave me thread and the, all those cutouts, she gave me like a few posters where it was like a breakdown of how to make the pads and everything and hygiene tips. So yeah, so like I would have the kids teach, I would teach them how to make it, how to um, turn the pad inside out like that. So then you sew all the way around and then, but you leave one bottom open and then you flip it 
So turn it inside out again, then close that part up and also sew on your uh, two strips on both ends. And then you have your, there's your menstrual pad. And so for cleaning, for cleaning it though, which I was always stressing it because sanitation is like, it's a very big deal there, especially because a lot of people, they don't have running water and sometimes they don't really have clean water. Um, in my village, they, they had a lot of, they had boreholes, but um, also people just, they, you know, they don't think about like sanitation, how often you have to clean something, especially when it comes to um, menstruation. So at the end of training, when I was done training them how to make it, which they love, like some people, these kids, some of these kids, I was like, did you already like learn how to sew? And they were like, no, I don't know. But they're like, so they get it. So they got it so quickly and they loved having a needle. Cause I was like, all right, be careful. Watch your fingers. They were pros. Like, I don't know. Like they were pros at it. And even like the women, when I would do some of the older women pros at it, they were good. Some of them made two, three in one sitting. So <laughs> that was always great. And, um, I would hold them at the end to really teach them how to clean them. And to clean them, it's like you need to put them in cold water, let them sit for a few minutes, maybe even an hour if you want to, let them sit longer, and then really like scrub them really well, which Ugandans, I'm sure in Madagascar, the way they clean, their hands are the strongest things ever. Like they scrub the hell out of their clothes and stuff. And I remember like my host mom, she was like cleaning my clothes for me when I first came. And I was like, you don't have to do it. Like I want to be able to do it myself. But um, when they would do it, like my shirts, when I say like all my shirts, like thin, like, and like see-through by the end of it. Because like, and we're like, any white, anything white was like pure white because they just scrub so well. But um, I was like, just, I was like, scrub as your usual, scrub your towel. I was like, it's good to have um, two to three towels. And it's really good to have like at least two to three rumps, like multiple ones, you know, because it's not good to like, you can clean one while you're wearing the other one and like you have them lined up ready to go. But yeah, clean them, wash them, hang them in the sun because like the sun helps with, I don't know, science, like the bacteria and <laughs> sunlight help, <laughs> helps. Yeah. Like science happens. <laughs> science happens. So put it in the sun and they were like, well, can we, and like, Ugandans are very like, um, modest. So they're like, put it outside, like on the clothesline. I'm like, yeah. And I was like, people aren't going to know what it is. It's fine. Like nobody cares. And at the, <laughs> to wrap it up, I would teach them like, imagine how a pad, imagine like folding it in half. And then taking the wing. So it looks like a little pocket, like a little square pocket when you fold it. So I would teach them how to do that. Oh, and also we would sew, I left this detail out. We would sew a button on one uh, one end. So when you put the pad in the underwear, it's like you fold it over and you put the button, like you lock the button on it. So that's how I did it. I was like, gave it to him. I was like, go ahead, make it a little square, like a little purse. And then tie it to your button. So nobody knows what it is. They think it's a handkerchief. So like, you don't have, you don't have to worry. Don't worry about it. Just really clean this, put it in the sun, scrub it very well. I was like, let it sit in that cold water and don't wear it longer than two to three hours. Or if you're a very heavy flow, make sure you have multiple towels ready. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for telling us about those highlights. That was interesting to hear like what you had done with those projects and <laughs> everything like that. That's cool. Um, so now what was like your top WTF moment? Oh man. Um, so many, <laughs> probably the only one I could think of. And that was, that was pretty funny. <laughs> My host mom. So she had like, I was basically on a, basically on a farm. Um, and she had like a bunch of animals, chickens and goats and cows. Um, <laughs> and she, one day, one of her cow, like they were, I think the, um, I guess you call them herdsmen or the guy that she hired to help her, like take her animals out into the field to go graze. One day, one of the goats were like running around and all of a sudden the mom just like drops, like she just drops right there in front of like in the middle of the yard. And like literally all of us, like I'm outside, you know, you my usual day playing music or sitting in my house. And I just hear the kids like, what's going on? And I like, look outside the goats on the ground. And I go over there and the ghost just like foaming at the mouth. And I'm like, oh, oh my God. I was like, she's dying. <laughs> like, I was like being like an animal lover, like touching her stomach and was like, what's wrong, mama? What's going on? <laughs> and the goat, I know it's terrible. It's terrible. But like she like finally dies. Like she stops breathing. Then <laughs> our neighbors are also over. Like my host mom's like, they're really good friends with them. So they're also over and they see this happening. And they're just like... Well, the husband was like, well, let's cut her up. Um, like, <laughs> they like take her to a tree out in the field. And I just see them like hacking away, like <laughs> doing stuff. And like everybody's taking their portion of goat meat. <laughs> and I was just standing up, sitting in my house in the doorway, looking out like, oh my God. 
one thing was funny like ugandans like they love their meat and while i was in uganda i did not eat meat or like i would eat fish only thing i ate was fish because i was like i didn't like the process of meat like all the blood and just like the butchery like i hated it and i was like i can't so even like i would even argue with other ugandans like i'm not eating meat here and my excuse was oh they put too many things in the meat there's too many steroids they're like oh it's fresh here it's organic and i'm like i'm sure it is but i'm okay and so it's like i just didn't want to deal with like the all of that so i was like i'm good which i did one time have pork which was very good at a really nice restaurant but they cut up the meat. Everybody took their portion. And my host mom was like, I know you don't eat meat, but I'm telling you, this is very fresh and good. And I was like, she was foaming at the mouth. Like, how do you know that? How do you know the meat was okay? Like, how do you know it was good? And they were like, it's fine. You just boil it. Just boil it for a very long time. She's, she's fine. And I was like, ugh. And then I, I was about to leave. I think I was going on a trip somewhere. So I was leaving. I was going in there telling her bye in her kitchen. And I see the goat head in a pot. And I was like, oh, all right, I'm gone. I'll be back in two days, mama. And I just like leave. I was like, Jesus. Like they did not care. And when I was telling my mom that, I was telling my mom back at home that story. She was like, yeah. She said, they, they're going to eat every bit of like of the meat there they do not give the animal they're gonna eat it all because for them you know i have to think about for them at least in uganda it's like not about pleasure it's like about survival and it's like if you got an animal you got you got for them it's like you got fresh meat right here this is dinner <laughs> like this is dinner lunch and breakfast for the next week we're good so it was like that side of it but it was a very like traumatizing moment and i was like oh <laughs> like they're cutting her up <laughs> jesus so, yeah, that was my big what the F moment because that was just, oof. I can understand that, yeah. I'm sure it was interesting because we definitely don't have to see that here in the States because, like, you know, it's in a processing area kind of thing. I'm surprised that they didn't find any issue with, like, the goat dying first without them killing it for me. Interesting. Literally, the second she stopped breathing, they did not waste time. They said, all right, let's cut her up. <laughs> They did not care. Yeah. God, I don't blame you. So with that in mind, like, what was your top OMG moment? Because this will be, like, probably the complete opposite of that event. So, <laughs> so like, two things. When I would get um, back to site, I was always excited and, like, have dinner with my family outside. It would, We would have – I would bring my speaker over and we'd, like, play some Ugandan hits for him on the speaker. And I would bring out my phone and I downloaded this um, star app. So I would like point it up at the sky and like there in Uganda, that was the first time I got to see like the Milky Way, like in person. Like I thought that was just the coolest thing because there's no like, you know, especially deep in the village, there's no electricity. So there's no lights like blocking anything out. So, but anyway, like when I would have dinner with like my family, sometimes outside, I would bring that star app out and point it up at the sky and like where you place your phone. Um, it'll show you like what constellation is right there or what planet you're looking at or what star and like give me the name and stuff. And I was like, okay, guys, look, that's Venus. There's Mars. And they were like, huh? And my husband like snatched my phone and was like, you're telling me that thing, that bright thing right there is a planet? And I was like, yes. <laughs> so it was never like, like a dull moment every time I brought my phone and like showed them like a planet on that star app because they were just so amazed by that. You know, they did... They didn't have like that technology. At least my host family didn't have that technology to see. It's like they're just used to seeing the stars every night how they are. You know, they think that's how it is all over the world. Everybody sees the stars like that. But it's like, no, <laughs> we don't. So that was always very cool. My second OMG moment, um, watching trolls with my host brother and sister like for like a hundred times. Because they would always come to my house. It would never fail. Around like eight or nine. After they have dinner, it's another thing. You guys have dinner like late like 9 10 p.m um and they would come to my house knock my door and they would say can we watch <laughs> i was like yes go on and sometimes i'll be like no guys like it's so late but other times i'm like yeah and i'm like what do you guys want to watch tonight and i would pull up my hard drive and like have all these movies i either brought or bought like in the capital and um they would always say princess poppy <laughs> I was like, okay and i was just trolls so that was also like a very like american thing too that i got to do with them it's like watching movies all the time 
with them because like they loved it and they were like they called me Eno they called me by my last name they're like Eno has movies so they would come and be like oh we want to watch Spider-Man or like oh we want to watch Iron Man or they you know have all these superheroes and then when they saw Trolls because I think because it was so bright and colorful and like all the music and stuff they were like we want to see Princess Poppy again I was like guys it's been like 10 times we've watched this but it never got old like it never got old though they were singing the songs and I'm singing with them so yeah, that was always like a, this is, this is great. So do they speak English there as well? Like, did they understand? Very well. It's interesting because like, okay, so people that are more wealthy in Uganda, especially like towards the capital and like the more um, suburban areas, they do a lot of international business with people. So they're used to like working with um, Asians or like Europeans a lot. And so the, the English is very good. And then it is also in the village because like, and you'll still get like a lot of, but a lot of older people don't speak English, but they'll understand you. So like, that's when I would really get practice in with like trying to use my local language to the best of my ability. Um, but yeah, they speak English very well. I would even say better than like some Americans, to be honest, because like, they, like they just, they speak it very well. And I, and I don't know how, like, but that's also in the schools I've noticed they're, they don't speak the local language. Like, they don't speak the national language, and they don't speak any local language they know. They don't allow them to. And they get beat. <laughs> you know, they get, like, hit if they speak their, the, you know, their um, native language in school. They get in trouble for it. So it really forces them, like, to speak English. Because they want the kids to grow up, you know, being able to speak to people outside of Uganda. Wow. That's kind of sad, though. Because then, like, their languages will, like, disappear, in a sense. I mean, you also wouldn't meet a Ugandan who like speaks like no more than two or three languages. Like my language teacher, he spoke, I think between nine and 10 languages. Like that's because like some Ugandans, they speak so many languages. And I'm like, how is that not confusing all this in your head? And sometimes my language teacher, he'll be teaching us and he'll be like, oh wait, hold on guys. Sorry, that's the wrong dialect. And like, like erase half the board. And he's like, my bad. <laughs> but... <laughs> but Pretty much almost everyone speaks English except the older population because they just like, whatever, we're old. I'm going to speak my native language. The kids usually, most like some of them, mostly everybody speaks the national language, but then you'll get some that also, pretty much almost everyone speaks Swahili, Kiswahili, and then they'll have like another dialect. So it's like everyone speaks at least two to three languages on top of English. I was just going to ask, what was the national language? And I thought it was Swahili, but I wasn't sure. Yeah, it's not. It's Luganda. In my village, though, we spoke Lusamia. So, like, when I say, like, Lusamia was, like, so tiny, it was literally only spoken in my village. Whereas Luganda was, like, everybody knows Luganda because, like, the radio stations and the TVs, everything's in Luganda. So everybody speaks it. But then not everyone speaks Lusamia or everyone or not everyone speaks the next language over like Lusoga, which is like another village next to us. So it's like, it was, it was interesting. Like I would be in my village, I would know when I'm in my village and then when I'm in another village because it'll switch so fast and the people are either speaking like a totally different local language. Yeah. So everything was very localized. It was like when I'm in my town, well, actually when I was in my village, I was speaking Lusamia. But then when, if I got to like the town, the main town that was in my, um, in my region, People are speaking Swahili because they're speaking Swahili in Luganda because like it was a border town. We like border Kenya. Like Kenya was literally, I could walk to it right, right across. So like everyone's speaking like a mix of Kiswahili, Luganda, um, and maybe like their local language. Can you say some things in the language at your town? Yeah. Um, so to greet people, you say Olio Tie. And that's like, how are you? And if it's like a group of people, like for like, since it's two of you here, I'll be like, Mulia Mutie, how are you all? And Luganda, it was Olia Otia. Like it was, it was like the same thing, but then some words were like a little switched around. Some letters were switched around. Um, so it was very close. Um, sometimes I would greet in uh, Kiswahili. I could say Jumbo to some people sometimes. I'm blinking on the one that I would always say. Oh, Muno. I would always say Muno, which is like, which I feel like, I think it was like a chopped and screwed kind of version of the language because not really taught to us, but I learned that one on my own, walking, like meeting people in my village. And they would always say, Muno, Muno, Muno. And it's just like, hey, hi, hi. Um, Mukwana, which was one of my favorites when I'm joking with another Ugandan. And Mukwano means like friend. So we'll be like talking and they'll say something like silly or stupid. I'm like, Mukwano, come on. So <laughs> that was always my favorite. So throughout two years of service in Uganda, what do you think was your biggest challenge? I think my biggest challenge was 
my organization like paired me with like that was another thing everything outside of the organization I had was like I adapted very easily to it I wasn't expecting it you know (laughs) it's like I wasn't expecting like um a very male driven like supervisor and he was like ready to kind of talk more down to me or not take me as seriously um and he had like these expectations for me that were like bigger than I don't know like he thought like oh American's coming here so she's gonna do this this and that and I'm like yeah, I can do some of that and a little bit of this, you know? So um, we, like, butt heads a lot on, like, um, ideas or trainings that we could do. And I was like, this is as far as I can go with this skill or this thing because I just personally don't know. And so some of that would also anger him. And then I'm like, I can learn or we can bring, like, another volunteer on to, like, because, you know, volunteers can work together. So I'm like, we can bring another volunteer on. And, like, if they know something I don't, like, we can work together and do that but he also wasn't very welcoming of a lot of my ideas so that was like pretty challenging especially for like probably the first year and a half to be honest pretty most of my service like trying to figure out like how to get along and like work with my supervisor and my organization um but I was very blessed with like a really good counterpart he literally became like my best friend like my advisor because he went any trainings that I did with my organization he translate it for me um he explained things further because it's like i may say something like in a very i guess american sounding way where it's like me and you would get it but then like someone else from another country is like to us that means this and that so like he was very he was very good at like um explaining things and really breaking it down in like in a in a ugandan way like a way that they would um understand it so my counterpart was really good on that end and i got to do like things with him and like his nursery school which was nice so it's like I, I got to make it work I made myself busy which was like I wasn't expecting to do that but then I was like it forced me out of my comfort zone forced me to like find things to do that I wanted to do or things that I was good at and like forced ideas it forced me to join like other Peace Corps organizations like I worked with like the malaria group and so I was like okay <laughs> I gotta so I gotta create my own work here which I think a, a lot of volunteers probably told you like they had to go find their own work yeah, I think uh, managing time in a way that is that you don't feel you're wasting your time, but also that you're, you're enjoying the experience. And I think it's toughest at the very beginning because, you know, we come from this mentality that you have to be productive all the time, that you have to be busy and you have to do something. And then you come to this experience like, holy shit, like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I know I wake up and I know I drink my coffee. And then what else? Yeah, we we do. And that was another thing too, like even though like we you know, we have that productive mindset, um, it was like being in Uganda forced me to chill. <laughs> like because, you know, I like I came straight from college, so I was like always working. I was either doing it like working my job as a graduate assistant or I was going to my other job and like doing that or studying, like and going to classes. So it was like like we had talked about earlier, like we just constantly working. And then when I got to Uganda, it was like, whoa, um, I don't have anything to do today. This is weird. Like, I don't have any work. I don't have homework. I have no assignments due. Like, I don't have to do anything today. So it, it forced me to, like, chill out, like, relax. <laughs> like, this is, you know, even though you can go and be productive and do things, it's okay to have a week of maybe go traveling, like, around the country or a week of literally reading a book and listening to a jazz band or something on Spotify that you just found, like just chill out. Like, so it, it, it forced me to like relax and add a lot of um, self-reflecting time. You mentioned during the gold episode that you didn't eat any meat. And I'm sure like almost all Ugandan dishes have some kind of meat. Did you become vegetarian during that time or? Surprisingly though, a lot of, a lot of meals didn't, uh, at least like in my village. Well, the the most I was in a fishing region or like my town was like a fishing region because like we had um a lot of water there, a lot of lakes and we were close to Lake Victoria. I ate a lot of what Ugandans consider peasant food or pissant as they call them. Like I'm the pissant. <laughs> so <laughs> it was a lot of peasant food because if you eat only they consider if you eat only vegetables and um anything outside of meat that you didn't have money. So it's like those that ate like chicken and pork and all the other stuff, they were like, they have money. You, you were the family that has money. And the poor family, they will only get meat for like special occasions like holidays or Christmas or Thanksgiving. But otherwise, it wasn't it wasn't hard to eat, like not eat meat there. Um, and sometimes I wouldn't even buy fish because of I, I hate the cleaning process and like the scaling. And it was it was a lot. 
So sometimes I resorted to a lot of um, rice and beans. I made like chapati. I would go either buy chapati or if I wanted to save money, I would just make my, I started learning making my own chapati. And like, that's like the flat circle bread, which is also like a big, pretty much a big, like one of the biggest money, one, one of the biggest money makers in Uganda, I feel like, because like there's a chapati stand everywhere. There's always a chapati stand, somebody's selling bread. Um, but they, it's also very filling, which is why I think people, um, it's, it, you can make a lot of money from it. But yeah, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't too hard. I ate a lot of greens. Like my host mom, I was also blessed with that. She was a really good cook because she came from Northern Uganda, which was like the border of Sudan. I'm really good with like mixing spices and things, which Ugandans don't like spices or spicy food or like experimenting with anything. It's like they stick to their corn or maize, they call it. They stick to their maize, their G nuts or peanuts and uh, greens. So like they, in posho, which was like a corn flour, maize flour, like mixed up to like a hard, or not a hard, but like a, a round looking thing that you like pick off of and like eat it with your whatever sauce or, um, dish you were dipping it in. So, but like they stuck to like staple foods, but they wouldn't do too much. But my host mom was like a very good cook and she would like, um, sometimes come and cook fish for me, or she would make my favorite dish, pasted greens. Whereas, which I still to this day do not know what kind of greens are there in Uganda. Like, because the green, like the, the way it looks is just so different. But somebody said, like, I think it's another form of spinach. But who knows? And it almost looks like kale, too. But it's not because it's softer. So it's, I don't know. But the greens there are good. And I ate a lot of greens. Um, so thank you again so much for interviewing with us. We love the time that you gave us and just hearing your tale. It was really fun uh, just hearing what happens in your site and everything that kind of is just so different but yet similar between our services as well. For all our listeners out there, if you want to see some show notes and pictures from Mani's experience, uh, they'll be on our website under her episode. And our website is peacecorpetalespodcast.weebly.com and that's dot w-e-e-b-l-y dot com also if you want to connect with us on social media we have an instagram account and that's at pc tales podcast so if you're also interested as being an interviewee for this podcast because we're always looking for new tales and just hearing different experiences you can definitely email us at peacecorpetalespodcast at gmail.com or go to our website and there's an inf- an interest form that you can definitely use to fill out and then we'll contact you as soon as we can So thank you everyone for listening in Velume and have a great day, evening, or whenever you listen to this. Bye bye Abby, Saramande.